Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Jacob Avila and I'm joined by Cray Bolger and Michael Pratt. Now, what we're going to talk about today is one of, I think, the most important topics and also one of my favorite topics, which is ultrasound and pulmonary embolisms. Now, this study is entitled The Increased Sensitivity of Focused Cardiac Ultrasound for Pulmonary Embolism in Emergency Department Patients with Abnormal Vital Signs. Now, diagnosing uh, pulmonary embolism with ultrasound is a little bit on the controversial side, and I think that you have to understand a couple of specifics with it. Now, there are basically three organs that you can use to look or evaluate your patient with suspected PE, and that is the ultrasound of the heart, ultrasound of the lungs, and ultrasound of the IVC. Now, the ultrasound of the lungs, that's something that is exceedingly controversial, and that's something that I, in the past, have been super excited about, but the more I practice, the less excited I am about using lung ultrasound for the diagnosis of PE, um, because I have such easy access to CT scan, to be honest. Um, you can also use the IVC to help you, but the IVC really only helps if you have a patient really in shock, and it's not really all that... I don't know, Craig, would you say it's more specific or more sensitive if you think that there is a PE? I think it's probably more specific. I don't think it has very high sensitivity, um, but I think it is always should be part of the cardiac exam because otherwise you're taking a third of the cardiac cycle out of your picture that you have ready access to. Now, this study is looking specifically at the heart, which is the way that I think most of us are evaluating our patients with PEs. Now, in the past, there have been studies that look at the heart for diagnosis of all patients with suspected PE, but that's not always like a great way of utilizing it because patients can have a small subsegmental PE and have absolutely no effects on their right heart, or at least any visible effects on their right heart. And that would definitely decrease the accuracy if you're looking at PEs at a whole. Now, if you have a patient that has a submassive or a massive PE, by definition, they should have some effect on the heart. And those patients are the subgroup of patients that I think that the ultrasound of the heart is the most beneficial. And this study looked at exactly that. If I could comment on some of the literature to date, everything that has been done so far is focused on ruling in this submassive group in PE. So if you have a patient where you strongly suspect PE, or even if you already know that they have a confirmed pulmonary embolism, you can use your point of care ultrasound to diagnose right heart strain in a variety of ways. And therefore that might help you that might allow you to know that this is a submassive or massive PE earlier and therefore expedite treatment. So I think that's what's been done to date, relying on the specificity. But what has failed thus far is showing that ultrasound, a point of care ultrasound, is sensitive enough to rule out pulmonary embolism. And these, this same group uh, with the lead author, Dr. Daly here, tried to show that using a TAPSI was sensitive enough to rule out a pulmonary embolism, and frankly, it wasn't really sensitive enough. And I think that's what triggered this article to look at a, a subset of the population where maybe it could be sensitive enough. So, Cray, 
How did they do this? What was their plan here? All right. So this was a convenient sample. So when the research team was available at six academic urban medical centers and they had to suspect PE, they had to be getting a CT, they had to be able to get an adequate cardiac ultrasound, which I think is a key point that we should talk about in a little bit. Um, They had to be an adult, no big deal. They had to show signs of shock, so tachycardic or hypotensive, which I want to talk about with the limitations and why not doing an IVC might have a problem with this. They could not be prisoners. They could not not speak English, so they could not be consented. And they could not have bad echo windows. I just want to bring that up because I think that's something we all struggle with, and I wish I could just say if I can't get your windows, I can't do the study, but that's just not the case all the time. When the patients were in the ER and one of the investigators was available, they got an ultrasound. And what they did is a four-view cardiac ultrasound, so parasternal long, parasternal short, subxiphoid, and apical four-chamber. They measured TAPSI, being less than two as abnormal, RV size qualitatively being greater than the LV, septal flattening, tricuspid regurge of any amount, and McConnell sign, so apical hyperkinesis. And if any of these were abnormal, the scan was considered positive. They then compared their focused POCUS ultrasound to uh, the CT angio as read by radiology. So who was scanning? So seven attendings, three residents, and three medical students. And just to bring to mind when we, because we reference back to those, if you couldn't obtain the images, you weren't included, 30% of these scans were done by the medical students. And just of note, those students who completed 30% of the scans did not have significant ultrasound experience prior to this. And they had to do 20 focus examinations with feedback prior to enrolling as a scanner. So some training, but not a lot. Um, and if we think about where that bar should be for cardiac, I don't know if everybody would agree they've met that bar. Um, and their primary outcomes they were looking at was the sensitivity of focus for PE with abnormal vital signs. The secondary outcomes was the likelihood ratios for the di- and the diagnostic t- test characteristics for each of these um, measurements that they were looking at. And they used their power and their confidence interval to say that they needed about 120 patients to get a sensitivity of 90%. So, Mike, what did they find? Well, they ended up having 143 patients that were eligible for the study. They actually didn't have too many exclusions. Four did not speak English and were excluded, and three, they were unable to obtain focus windows. So, although we oftentimes don't like when they exclude patients that you can't get windows on because it kind of buffers your results to look a little bit better, at least they didn't have too many like that. So, they ended up with 136 patients. Of those, about 27% had a pulmonary embolism, and 16% of that population that did have a PE were hypotensive. If you look, comparing the groups of pulmonary embolism and non-pulmonary embolism, they were pretty similar, but uh, not surprisingly, the group that had pulmonary emboli had a higher rate of a sign of a DVT. So that makes sense. So Let's talk about the primary outcome. Now, technically, they had two primary outcomes because they wanted to look both at patients with a heart rate above 100 and a heart rate greater than or equal to 110 as a subgroup. 
So we frown upon two primary outcomes generally, but let's go through them. For the heart rate greater than or equal to 100 or blood pressure less than 90, sensitivity of their focus was 92%, confidence interval 78 to 98. That gives you a negative likelihood ratio of 0.13. So pretty good. You know, Usually for likelihood ratios, we would like to see it be 0.1, but this is pretty close. Now for a their second primary outcome, heart rate greater than or equal to 110, there were 98 patients, and they found a sensitivity of 100, 100%. Yay! So confidence interval 88 to 100 there. Let's run through some of the secondary outcomes, then we can talk about our thoughts. So they broke down the different components of the scans to kind of see which parts were most accurate. And I'm not going to go through all of it, but you should know some of these highlights. TAPSI, remember their cutoff was 2, was the most sensitive component, at 88% sensitive. Focus overall, the whole scan, was only 64% specific. The most specific sign was McConnell's sign, and that was 99% specific, with a pretty tight confidence interval. So that gives you a positive likelihood ratio of 33.7, which is not too bad. After that, the next most specific was septal flattening, and that was a positive likelihood ratio of 5.9. Now, again, in the subgroup analysis of the extra tachycardic patients, these were a little bit more sensitive. So TAPSI was now 93% sensitive, and the McConnell's was 100% specific in that group. So other findings, they did have a high interrater reliability, a kappa of 1, and this seemed to be lower for TAPSI and some of the other components. Now, here's a key finding that's buried in these results. Remember that their protocol included tricuspid regurgitation. 60 of their patients, 60 out of 136, had data missing for the tricuspid regurgitation. So we'll circle back to that at the end. Briefly, this was a multi-center study. I think they had six sites that enrolled. But if you look at their supplemental data, you'll notice that two of the sites enrolled 76% of the study participants. So there was definitely a preponderance of the data coming from two of these main sites, whereas there was just a handful from the other sites. So let's go into the limitations for this study. What do you guys think? Anything that bothers you? Or, Craig, you look like you're itching to say something. So maybe this is just my bias working at a quaternary center, but A lot of these measurements, I think, need to have other exclusion criteria if we're going to use this for PE, or maybe even not have exclusion criteria, but we need to talk about it. Like the patients with chronic right heart strain from pulmonary hypertension, TR from chronic pulmonary hypertension, COPD, et cetera. Like we're not taking into account a lot of these other diseases, which are often on our differential are, you know, decompensated states that can mimic a PE on ultrasound. And I think that's an important kind of elephant in the room to discuss um, because we go to ultrasound and we see septal flattening. And when you tell me 30% of your scans came from a med student with minimal experience, are they getting adequate images? We see a lot of cases where there's septal flattening from malrotation of the probe. Um, And so I think I like the idea of this study. I think you're essentially taking the likelihood nomogram and increasing your pretest probability for POCUS and its success by 
kind of using these vital signs, but I think we have to discuss the other possibilities. You know, like it's great that they found the PEs in these patients, but if you take a more complicated patient, can you apply these results similarly? We don't have a lot of that background information on the patients in this. What other comorbidities did they have? Again, shock is shock. Tachycardia and hypotension could be a preload problem as well. Um, and when you're not looking at the IVC, you have no idea about that. Well, I think with with these patients, I mean, you're you're. I'm assuming that they're doing this because they think that PE is the most likely diagnosis. I mean, if you take like every patient with shortness of breath, and if you were to apply these tests, I think that for sure you would run into a lot of issues. But I'm assuming that all these patients, the clinicians, even that the medical students, I mean, they're not primarily taking care of the patient. I think that the medical students were directed to do the scan based off of PE being you know, a, a very likely diagnosis. I mean, if you look at McConnell sign in all people that have a um, an echo just in general, um, the McConnell sign is like horribly nonspecific for a PE. But if you apply it to the this patient population, which is PE, you know, the McConnell sign has a 99% specificity and that's consistent with the literature. All that being said, I definitely agree with you that you should never use this ultrasound completely by itself. I mean, I think that the IVC is definitely a really good um, and necessary part of this examination. I'm very happy with that. And then also including other stuff, you know, like um, the patient's history. What's the likelihood? Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think a lot of times, unfortunately, PE isn't the only thing on our differential. Like you take the 40-year-old with lung cancer who's a smoker, so has a history of COPD, who now has chest pain, tachycardia, and shortness of breath. Now, PE is on my differential, but so is tamponade, so is COPD exacerbation. They probably have some chronic right heart strain from their uh, tumor burden and their COPD. And so I think that's that patient that I really want to see a study that helps me differentiate them. And I'm not convinced that this is that study. I think this is great for the 30-year-old postpartum patient with chest pain, shortness of breath, and tachycardia. This study helps me a lot with that patient population. I also don't have a broad differential for that patient either. You know what's cool about this study is that they did not exclude patients who have known pulmonary hypertension chronically or even those that are at risk for having that, um, which is in distinction to some of the other similar studies looking for signs of right heart strain. So I liked that because it allows us to apply it to a broader population. And as far as the pretest probability, there was a high proportion of people in this group that had the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, but really their only criteria for enrolling was that they had a CT scan for the, you know, CT pulmonary angiography, which almost always is being done for pulmonary embolism in the emergency department. Well, here's one of my concerns, and we're going to bring it back to that tricuspid regurgitation. They really developed this protocol to optimize the sensitivity, right? That was their whole goal. They want to see how well this could rule out a PE in this population. And so they they added a high TAPSI. You know, a lot of people consider TAPSI less than 16 millimeters abnormal. They went for two just to increase the sensitivity. And that, again, is related to their prior study on TAPSI. And then they added in tricuspid regurgitation, and there's this little line in the study that is, I think, very significant where they say, because they weren't sure that this variety of sonologists could perform a tricuspid regurgitation reliably, they just went with 
a binary, is it there or is it not there? Recognizing, of course, that it's going to be there normally in a subset of patients. A lot of people just have a small amount of tricuspid regurgitation, and in this study, that would be positive. And so they understood that, but they really wanted to make it a sensitive protocol. Well, my concern is that we don't know what happened because nearly half of their patients ended up not having a tricuspid regurgitation performed. But my guess is that if people try to apply this protocol, they do the tricuspid regurgitation, they're going to end up having a lot of false positives because it can be positive in normal people. And therefore, this is going to have an even worse specificity, which already the specificity, like 60%, kind of horrible. So if we even worsen that, my fear, I guess my one fear from this is that if people apply this protocol in the wrong patients, inappropriately trying to do this on all comers who they are worried about PE to even the slightest degree, then it might end up being overly sensitive and lead to further downstream testing. In essence, becoming the new D-dimer of -of point-of-care ultrasound. I think that's like a reasonable concern. Um, But I mean, it's, I don't think it'll be like as bad as the D-dimer because D-dimer, we're only doing that on like low risk patients, which is the vast majority of patients where we're like, eh, they're low risk wells. I think that they probably don't have it, but I can't perk them out because they're like 65. So I'm going to get the D-dimer. But you're talking about appropriate use. How how often (laughs) have you seen a patient when somebody like shot off a D-dimer from triage and you're like, I wasn't even considering PE. The chief complaint was shortness of breath and somebody ordered D-dimer. Yeah, on board with that. But let's assume it's being used appropriately. That's still like going to be a fair, like fairly large amount of patients, even if you're using it appropriately um, versus this ultrasound, which you're only using that on the smallest percentage of patients in whom you would suspect a PE, which is the massive and the submassive, you know? Are you though? Because I would say you're using ultrasound probably more broadly than your D-dimer. Like maybe it's, again, our patient population, but I encourage my residents, low voltage EKGs, chest pain, shortness of breath, that you don't have a clear answer for, you should be ultrasounding. Because more often than not, we find something that may have been on our differential, but not high. Whether it's, I was going to look for a PE and I found tamponade, or I was going to look for tamponade and found pneumonia. I think a lot of times, we're probably more broadly applying POCUS than we would a D-dimer. And that our pretest probability for PE in a lot of these patients is not necessarily high, it's probably moderate with multiple things equally being considered in the differential. And so I think that's, I have a hard time applying this whole protocol. I think I would take a few things away from it that TAPSI is really good. Septal flattening in an appropriate image is pretty good. And I would use those as key teaching points in somebody who's doing a cardiac ultrasound with IVC in a undifferentiated dyspnea patient, that if they see those two things, their pretest probability for PE should go up. I think those are my two takeaways from this article. Well, let me try to summarize this article. This was 136 patients prospectively multi-center study, and their primary outcome was the sensitivity for PE of a focused cardiac ultrasound in patients with 
heart rate greater than 100 or systolic blood pressure less than 90, they ended up having sensitivity 92%, which is a negative likelihood ratio 0.13. In the subset with greater than 110 heart rate, sensitivity jumps up to 100%. Take home points for this article, a negative focused echo can significantly lower your post-test probability for patients in whom you suspect PE that have tachycardia and hypotension. Secondly, this protocol optimized for sensitivity is less specific for PE than a lot of the prior studies based on how they designed it. Nevertheless, we really commend the authors for this article because this was a very important question that they tackled and we are really appreciative of having this data. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And if you want to find out more, go to ultrasoundgel.org. You can go to our Facebook page or talk to us on Twitter, where we would love to chat. Until then, we will talk to you later. More pressure. More gel. More pressure. More gel. More ultrasound gel podcast. You're like a dinosaur. <laughs>